0: Um, There will be a question and answer tonight, so if you want to ask easy questions to me, that's good. I'll pass them on to Fred Dickinson if they're really hard. um, I did want to go back and say one other thing. I saw it in our notes, and I never addressed it. It was back having to do with the premises of legalism. Remember that? Was it a K-4 or 5 or something? By the way, if you find yourself nodding off or if you have a bad back and it's hard to sit, feel free to get up and roam around. There's no problem with that. What page is that on where it says, page K4? One of the reasons why I think, and I haven't kept statistics, but the number, the percentage of cases of severe abuse, sexual abuse, ritual abuse that goes on in churches or with church leadership. The high percentage are those that come from a more fundamentalist, um, you know, very strict um, uh, upbringing. And I'm not saying that there's there's anything wrong with sticking to the truth. I'm not saying that. But if that church is all tangled up in legalism, which in some of the hallmarks of legalism, remember we said um, God is presented as a judge and he's just waiting for you to step out of line. And then the, the principles in his word become the one, two, threes of, of, of evaluating your spirituality So, for example, the pastor that was in our office that's addicted to pornography, he didn't dance. So, he was okay. Nobody knew that he was addicted, but he didn't dance, you know. The getting, getting caught up in, in evaluating somebody's spirituality by what they don't do or whatever. Um, I think the reason that there's a link between A very legalistic upbringing or legalistic church and sexual abuse is because of this fact. One of the premises, as you see there, uh, of legalism, our emotions are bad. Well, God created body, soul, and spirit. To me, part of the soul is um, our, our emotions it's like closing the door on the garage and never looking in there for 50 years. Well, in that darkness, the cockroaches begin to multiply. And I've heard some of these legendary sizes of your cockroaches down here. We don't have them at our house, but last night I looked, I said, oh, somebody dropped something. Said, oh, no, that's a roach trap. They must have roaches. Well, anyway, sidetrack. Uh, if, if you say emotions are bad, or the next premise, Um, flesh and feelings or emotions are the same. Our feelings equal our flesh. You're supposed to deny the flesh. So pretend you don't feel. Um, That's just about as bad as the other extreme, of what I call victory by denial. I'm not sick, I'm healed, I don't have this. I'm really rich, I just live in poverty, but I'm really rich, you know. That's victory by denial. Well, the other side is... Denying the, the part that God made us is human. I had a real hard time accepting this because my abuse left me, they call it flat affect, just no emotions. I didn't get mad, I didn't get sad, I didn't get anything. I was just here. And when somebody said, emotions are from God, I said, "Oh, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. No. Um, but then, so I looked and I said, how emotional was Jesus Christ? I figured whatever emotions he had, it was safe if I entered into those. So I studied him. I took a video camera and read through John again. I watched him, and I saw what emotions did Jesus Christ exhibit. So I figured, well, those at least were the safe ones, you know. Um, it was it was a, a breakthrough for me because if if you believe that you have instead of instead of saying all right, instead of going to prayer meeting and it, Not praying about Aunt Susie's second cousin's neighbor lady's brother who has cancer. Now if that's a concern for that person, that's good. We want to help we want to intercede and bear their burden because they know that person. But wouldn't we all die if somebody stood up and prayed me and said, You know, I need to pray because I've been wrestling with lust all week. Then we'd have to call nine one one. Um instead. And I'm not saying you take your laundry and throw it all around, but as the Lord leads, instead of saying, well, um, I have a problem with lust, but if I'm dead to my emotions, I won't have that problem anymore. So I'll just work on being dead to my emotions. I'll pretend I don't have lust. And the, just, it goes underground. It goes out in the garage. Um, so I think, I think because of some people's view that Your feelings are always suspect. You could never rely on them. You 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 just have to deny yourself, and that means pretend that you're okay. Now, we don't want to go to the extreme of living by our feelings. We want to live on the basis of truth. We want to bring truth to our feelings. But that's why I think there's such a disconnect between head truth and heart truth. Because if we said, well, you know, sort of like, on the farm we used to try to get a calf to come. Then we tried to get a calf to come that didn't want to come. I mean they put four you got the rope and they put four feet out and they skid across the barn floor. Well sometimes when we take our thoughts captive, that's what we have to do. Because like Elizabeth Elliot said, they don't want to come. (laughs) We have to take our thoughts captive. But that doesn't mean we crush the part of us, our emotions, that there may be lying feelings going on, not cerebral lies. So we tell the person in front of us, you know, it wasn't your fault, it wasn't your fault, or it was your fault, it was your.... they have it in their head. I know God loves me, but I can't believe it. I think part of the reason is because if we've turned off our emotions, or if we've thought, well, they're not necessary. You know, I mean, spirit, that's good, we need that with that emotion. I'm not so sure we even need that. Well, apparently Christ needed it, so. Um, but if we do that, then we get a feeling. The enemy is able to just give us a feeling. Can't put our finger on it. And we get in bondage to something, and you wonder, well, what am I doing over here? I am just even puzzled that I fell into this. Um, so I just wanted to say that because, especially where there is an outward structure without a guidance to grow an inward structure, uh, in children's lives, even, their emotions can become crushed. They're, they get crushed in spirit as well. But their emotions, they realize I, my emotions aren't good. my If I use them in my home, uh, that's shut down right away. And a lot of the people that we see have shut down emotions. That's why they're still stuck in what they're stuck in. Because they think that it's a sign of weakness. Or unspirituality to enter into the emotions that God gives me, emotions that He's given us. Are there any questions on that before we get on this different topic that we're supposed to be talking about? Comments? Okay. M is the word, is the letter for this section. But let's do dealing with pride first, which is on M six, and then after our break, we'll come back and discuss um, rebellion. As I said, I'm single, and those of you that are single will know what I mean when you when I say mashed potatoes for one is an oxymoron. I mean, you can't make, really, mashed potatoes for one, you know. If I take one potato and, you know. So when you get to Thanksgiving and you're invited to somebody's house and they serve mashed potatoes, that's very important. Well, every once in a while the Lord seems to whisper in my ear nowadays when I'm in situations where... Pride really comes to the surface. Mashed potatoes. And the reason it reminds me of that is the fact that I remember real vividly at one Thanksgiving, I was at Hugh and Jeannie's house, and they have three growing boys. And there were two problems. One, Hugh led in prayer. I mean, there was this huge bowl of mashed potatoes right there in front of Hugh. Oh, he led in prayer, but he tends to be quite lengthy. So that was first a problem for my flesh. Because i are going to be getting cold if he doesn't quit soon. But besides that, there were three growing boys between me and the mashed potato dish. And I remember thinking, well, Hugh, you know, he got done praying and he started talking. He wasn't touching the mashed potatoes. And I was like, you know, you know, just go with the mashed potato. Then they came to each person and I thought, well, David, I hope there's enough for me. You know, like he's taking them all, you know. And it was such a small thing. But the Lord, it, it was such in contrast to thinking, you know what? If anybody at this table has to go without mashed potatoes, Lord, I'd be willing to do that. I, their needs are more, are more important. That was so foreign. I mean, I was looking for the mashed potatoes, you know. And it's such a little thing, but I realized that the self-centeredness that fosters pride is such a default in me, in all of us as humans. It's like, well, how does that relate to me? You know. I mean, I'm I was I'm not saying that sentence, but you go into a auditorium, it's all filled up, So, oh, where am I going to sit? Where am I going to sit? And then something else happens and you think, well, uh, what, is, what does he think about me? Or what is you know? And then that joke where someone says, well, that's enough about me, now what do you think about me? You know? <laughs> The self-centeredness that fosters pride is such a strong thing that the, of the flesh. A pastor friend of mine said he kind of tricked a lady once because she seemed to be rather spiritually arrogant. And she was, oh, you know, those people, I mean, I'm glad. It's sort of like the 1st I'm glad I'm not like those others. And uh, so he said, well, you've been a Christian for years now, haven't you? And she said, yeah. And he said, well, can you share with me, what improvement have you seen in your flesh? And she said, well, you know, it really seems to be coming a lot. Without realizing it, there's no improvement for the flesh. The flesh doesn't get better. It's there. We learn how to conquer it. We learn how to choose. The other way. But it's there. I was sort of like an anchor dragging along. Well, she began to realize, you know, she was even taking pride in thinking she had her flesh more under control. Um, on our second slide here, is this is this working okay? Um, Webster defines pride, and you have it there on your notes as well. On M six, a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from achievement, qualities, or possessions. Now that doesn't seem too bad, does it? In a Christian context, if we're saying Lord. Like that like that little boy, remember, with the plastic tools. Look what Dad and I made. Being able to point to the one who has allowed us to be in a place of ministry, a place of service, or to accomplish something. Or he's given us, because he gives us all things freely to enjoy. To do that in a Christian context, and give him the glory, and point to him, I don't think it would even be defined as pride. Well then, what's wrong with pride? Well, I know for one thing, the Bible's against it. <laughs> um, there might it might be helpful to look at a related word that kind of gives a flavor more of of what what we need to guard against. In the next slide, arrogance is a word that's real related to pride. It's having an exaggerated sense of one's own importance or abilities. And for me, I guess. I've discovered that if the enemy can't snag me in something unchristian like, he snagged me in something Christian like. Because spiritual arrogance is so easy to fall into. You know, and, and you think, well, you know, our church has got it straightened out, but I'm telling you, remember the charisphobics, charismatical, and charismatic from last night? All those people on that side, they're just the mass. But leave, leave that to truth. I'm telling you what, they better get their act together, you know. So I think, not that you don't evaluate evaluate things, but the, when I asked the Lord, well, am I evaluating or am I judging? And he said, what is your heart feeling for that person? And I said, I'm mad at them because they're acting stupid and believing it. And I thought, oh, I bet that's judging, isn't it? <laughs> and then I thought, you know, I went to the Lord and I said, in this one situation, Lord, they're, they're believing something stupid. When can I tell them, straighten them out? You know, well, I should have known right how I said it that it was, you know, spiritual arrogance. I said, well, I want it when can I talk to them? I want to tell them. That and it was as though the Lord ministered in my heart, you can go do that when in prayer you've wept over what they're believing that causes in their own mind. Well, you better believe it shut down a lot of my going to people and straighten them out. Um, not that there aren't times for that, but my motive was because I was irritated with what they believed. And it bothered me. So if they changed their view, then I wouldn't be bothered. So that kind of fell into that arrogance thing here. Arrogance, it says, is having an exaggerated sense of one's own importance or abilities. This is the, I'm the center of the universe thing that we all inherit in our DNA at birth. A prideful attitude says, I'm the source of all good things. Yeah, that's the next one. I have within myself adequate resources to do, and then you fill in the blank, whatever. And I am indispensable. I find for us recovering workaholics, this is the one that tingles me up because I think, well, I can't take time off because, what? I mean, who's going to do with this, you know? And I begin to see that part of that might be that I'm involved in things that the Lord's going to be called to do. I've just gotten busy and as a doer, I get under-discerning and overcommitted, or else that um, I'm sort of thinking, well, nobody can do this without me. And that uh, pretty much fits into that last thing there. By the way, back on that word arrogance. Those of you that took the Latin, you know, hic, cock, hic, and all, that, and all that other stuff we learned. Anyway, arrogare, um, which we get that arrogance from, it means to claim for oneself. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, I did this. i see all this. I did this. All. Yeah, it must be hard for pastors when they go to like those pastor conferences, because. I mean, inevitably, we fall into the idea that success equals numbers. So here's this guy from an 11 million member church. He looks to you and says, well, how many members? you well, I got uh 86, you know, <laughs> something like that, you know. How not to slip into that, you know, measuring somehow, you know. I was talking to somebody the other day about, they said, well, things seem to be dwindling down. I said, well, you know who comes to mind is Gideon. The Lord said, there's too many people here. They'll get the credit instead of me. I'm going to have to cut these numbers out. <laughs> I wouldn't suggest you hope for that, but it must be real hard not to be enticed by the numbers game and uh, the pride in your church or in your whatever that can come. Because even in the Christian community, I think we do it. Numbers equals success. Um, the next slide, let's see. Pride often also brings... It has lots of cousins and aunts and uncles. It comes to the family reunion with everybody. Unteachableness is one of them. Legalistic thinking. If we had to define legalism, I keep using that word, I guess a, a thumbnail way to say it would be conforming to outward standards only. There's nothing wrong with conforming to outward standards godly standards, but if the word only is on there, the standards rather than being connected with him, become the focus. Condescending attitude is another one, or spiritual arrogance we mentioned. Um, Another one is uh, just bragging, which, like I said at the pastor's conference, it must be really hard to They're not sort of one-upmanship, you know. Um, uh, This is where we're making sure everyone else is aware of how wonderful we are. (laughs) I hope they notice how smart I am. I hope they notice how this I am. I hope they notice how that I am. I discovered this when I moved to Colorado Springs because when I lived in Ohio, Columbus, Ohio, nobody wanted to visit me for their summer vacation. Now that I live in Colorado Springs and can see snow-covered Pikes Peak from my kitchen window, I have people lining up to spend a week in the summer, and that's understandable. But I discovered how I like to be an authority. I like to I like to be an expert, because my company would say, "Well, how tall is that mountain?" Well, that's fourteen thousand two hundred thirty-six feet. You know. Well, when was this built? Well, that was in the Gold Rush. That's eighteen. Now, you know. And then I'm thinking, well. If I could just make up anything, they wouldn't know. Because they're going back to North Carolina next week, you know. And fortunately, the Lord didn't allow me to do that. But I thought, why do I take such pleasure that I have this information that they don't? Because I like to be the expert, you know. Well, what's that? Well, I think that's one of the cousins of pride. Um, It's a real door for the flesh, that's for sure. Um, also, pride often brings works of the flesh, such as disputes, factions, envying, and jealousies. And then also hidden forms of pride, such as insecurity and inferiority. People say, well, don't tell me that because I'm feeling bad about myself already, and now you're telling me i got trouble with pride. <laughs> I'm not saying necessarily that it's always true. Most of what I see in my life and others, it is true. But insecurity often is pride in reverse because it, it says, I don't measure up to those people. Whereas, you know, uncamouflashed pride says, I'm better than those people. And an insecure person wants to move toward being better than those people. Um, so the, also inferiority um, often is, I hate the way I think people perceive me. Well, why? I don't want them to think bad of me. Why? Well, they might think bad of me. They might not like me. I discovered, like I said last night, the power of wanting people to like you that I get enticed with. So I'm always explaining and like over explaining because if they just understand, then they'll understand, then they'll like me. I don't, I can't be comfortable knowing there are people out there that don't like me. But what is that? <laughs> Well, they're supposed to like me. I mean, we're all, don't we think people are supposed to like us? That's like a law or something. You know. But what happens is, what if the Lord allows people in your life that rip you to shreds and you have no way to defend yourself? Well, it's probably by God's grace that you can't defend yourself. Because then He's your defense. But it's really uncomfortable to know that, you know, those people in the church split that are on that side and they're believing these lies about me, or the people here in the class. The Lord kind of really helped me see how often that desire to have people like me led to the fear of man rather than obeying his voice. Sometimes I think the more sensitive nature we have, the more we fall prey to that. Because we really don't like conflict. We We just don't want to go there. On the next page, four categories of pride. By the way, what would be the opposite of pride? Humility. Okay, I'm a newbie again. God uh, is opposed to the proud but exalts the humble. What does it mean to be humble? I'm a new Christian now. What does that verse mean? What does it mean? Are you a humble person? Well, okay, what were evidences of your humility in this past week? See, I'm, I'm just, I'm not trying, as a newbie, I'm not trying to poke at you, I'm just trying to understand this thing of humility. Do you learn humility, or like you're born with it, or you have to buy it, or what, how do you get humility? What is it? Recognizing your position before God. Well now, can you expand that a little? What is that? What is my position before God? Oh, now that makes me feel like a worm. <laughs> <laughs> Being a child of God makes me feel like a I'm beginning to understand it a little bit. Okay. Pride is total on and is total on That's good. Pride is total dependence on yourself. Humility is total dependence on God because it's saying there's somebody bigger, smarter, wiser than I am, and He's my master. I'm His servant, but I'm also His friend. You know that song? Um, we had that chart at the end of the last thing, you know, sort of the first church of the Legalists and then Grace Chapel. Well, when the the when those that are stuck in outward adherence to rules only, sing amazing grace, it's amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved the worm, like me. You know, like you were saying. Whereas Grace Chapel sings amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a worm, like me. You know, it's not, it's acknowledging our own worthlessness without him but embracing his grace that makes us kings and priests. Okay, I won't pester you more about humility. Let's go on. Four categories of pride. Every manifestation of pride falls into one of these four categories. At least I found that they have. When I begin to assume responsibilities that belong to God. We have a class called Katie's Secret, Recovering from Sexual Abuse for Ladies. and We are finding that it was interesting all of us in the class had been sexually abused as kids. And we also had one other problem. We had trouble discerning what was our responsibility and what was the other guy's responsibility, not in the abuse, but in everyday things. So, for example, one lady was realizing that she was playing the role of Holy Spirit to keep her husband in line so he wouldn't embarrass her in public. And uh somebody else was feeling that what her job was to do was to go around and just... um Make sure that her children were perfect because, see, she felt really bad about herself, and uh, she'd been abused, and she'd never received forgiveness and cleansing in her own heart for that. So, it was crucial that a kid just told the line. So, uh, her role was to be, you know, police officer to keep her kids in line in this heartless, strict, only adherence to outward stuff that we were talking about. So we decided we wanted to take an early retirement from some of these jobs that weren't really our responsibility. So we had an early retirement party, and we all listed out, yeah, a certificate, thank you for your service for all these years, but now, you know, you're off the hook. And one lady specifically, you know, put in there, I resigned from the job of trying to keep my husband from embarrassing us in public. Well, to begin with, what she thought was embarrassing was based on her view of the whole thing. It may not have been inappropriate at all, but regardless... That wasn't her job, uh, to go around, you know, behind somebody, or vice versa. But she also found, in that class, we found that that there, there are three main jobs that we all take on for ourselves. One of them is mentioned here under A, when we take on the responsibility to become our own protector. Especially those of us that have been abused as kids, we say, well, where was God? He didn't do it, so I'm going to have to do it. It's all up to me. But there's two other things I'd like us to add under point A. And um, that is that not only do we self-protect, but we self-provide. I call my credit card my Hagar. Because I always have it in the back there, and I'm tempted... I'm praying for God's provision, and if he doesn't come through, I always have Hagar. (laughs) Maybe that's not how it is for everybody, but I find the temptation. It's like, well, God, we need this by 2 o'clock. Remember, Hagar was the one the Lord had promised, a son. And it wasn't so much Abraham got nervous, but Sarah was getting nervous. She says, well, why don't you just kind of speed some things along? I mean, surely it's okay with Hagar. And then Ishmael, even Abraham later says, oh, Lord, let Ishmael stand before the, you know, i got a different plan, you know. Well, it, it's not just with money, but ways that we provide for ourselves. it's like, um, even in marriage, I know some ladies who, for whatever reason, don't connect to their husbands in the way that the, that you see pictured in scripture. And because that's in place, they think, well, I have to have my emotional needs met somewhere else. So I'm going to provide them because there's this, you know, guy, guy at work and he's just, or at the church and he just, you know, we just talk. And what's so wrong with that? Well, it may be that the needs that the Lord wants to provide to her husband in emotional connectedness, for whatever reason, either aren't being met or she doesn't perceive they're being met. So she's providing a Hagar over here. When I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, would you look for Hagars in my life? I was really surprised. All the places I kind of rushed in and helped God do His job so that He wouldn't look bad, because after all, I told everybody that He was going to come through. <laughs> uh, self pro- protection, self provision. Makayla, you have to help me out again. Nope, not. It's not on there. Self-empowerment is the third one, that's it. Self-empowerment. We take it into our own hands. This you could just add under A, 1A. Self-protection, self-provision, and self-empowerment. That's a good question. Self-empowerment is kind of like self-provision, but it's like, Okay, you're riding in the car spiritually with the Lord and He's in the driver's seat. And you go, do you see that, do you see that bump in the road up ahead? And He says, yeah, He keeps driving. The more He he keeps leading you in that direction, You, you panic a little and you think, well, wait a minute, don't you remember that your main job is to make my life easy? You know? That That's your job description, God. I mean, we won't be so blatant, but we're saying anything negative in my life, your job is to remove it. If I have enough faith, especially, you're supposed to just remove it like that. Because endurance and perseverance and that stuff, that doesn't, I don't value that much. I just want pain relief. See, that's my goal. And so God's my pain relief. Um, so you see him driving, and he's not, doesn't look like he's going to go around that pothole. So quick as a wink you reach over and grab the steering wheel and jerk it around so you can bypass that. It was interesting to me that Jericho was so strategically placed in the land that they couldn't take they couldn't go around it. They had to confront Jericho. And in so many places in my life I see where it's wanting the easy way out is kind of human and natural, and I don't believe we should pray for problems. But I've been able to tell the Lord, Lord, I would love to not have to go through this. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Oh, you hear someone has cancer. Say, Lord, you could speak the word and heal her. I don't know what your plans are for her life. If you're going to heal her of the cancer or not heal her, but I would wish that you would heal her for her sake. Would would you let this cup pass from her? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so then the first part, if you only say the first part, it's the self-empowerment where you take charge. The second category, oh, let's look still under the first category, uh, to be critical or judgmental of others. That's that having the job of the Holy Spirit. I was really shocked to realize that every time I heard error, I didn't have to speak truth to it. That might sound funny, but in our discipleship classes, some of the ladies' lives are so, they're so rife with distortions and deceptions that in two sentences they have about ten lies about God. Well, I don't know where he was, because I've given up on him anyway, but I'm just trash, so he's not going to want to do anything in my life anyway. Well, then you think, well, when am I supposed to start God? Do do I, you know, get a list of verses for each one of those, or what? what should I do here? And he brought it home real clear to me one day because um, in that class there was someone who was from a rich abuse background, a group of about 30 ladies, and, and right out in the middle of class, she said, well, I thank God, blankety-blank, you know. Well, the first thought was, well, my goodness, don't, you know, back up because the lightning might hit her, you know, you know, for saying that. And then I thought, okay, wait, what do you want me to do? So I said to her, Well, you know, I'm Phyllis, I know a little bit about your background and I can understand why you believe that. And then I went on to taught the class. Well, this was a six week class on getting to know the father. And the whole goal of it was that by the end of the class the ladies would come to the conclusion, maybe I don't have an accurate picture of God. That was the goal. So about two or three weeks later, Phyllis again just kind of burst out. In the middle of the class says, I don't think I see God right. And I thought, how gracious of the Lord to give me that example. If I had immediately rushed in and said, Now, Phyllis, now, you got to be watching what you're saying now. That's nothing for a Christian saying. Besides that, blah, 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 blah. You know, if I had from myself, because I was upset by what she said, rushed in there, she probably wouldn't have gotten as quickly to the realization that she didn't see God clearly. Same way as a personal gift of evangelism doesn't need to do the four spiritual laws or the Roman road with every single person that he sees during the day. But he uses his gifting as the Lord leads. And that's the same that I found as well. To take control of my life and situations, we've kind of already spoken to that. Number two is looking to someone or something to give me only what God can give. That's called idolatry. I would rather call it um looking to someone else for something instead of idolatry. Sounds pretty bad when it's idolatry. It lists four things here. Our worth, our value, our significance, our acceptance. You know, God has really given me a good gift. And that gift, I've never been married, that gift is contentment and singleness. Now whether I get married tomorrow or I get a wedding announcement next week, I don't know as the word leads, but I meet so many single people that are so focused, their life would be complete if they could get married. If only. And that's how you find out if you're looking to someone or something to give you only what God can give. If you complete the sentence, if only, then I would be satisfied, complete, whatever. The funny thing is, these single people that are telling me this, I don't know that I meet with married ladies and go, if I only didn't have a husband, then I'd be <laughs> satisfied. <laughs> so I think it speaks to the issue of dissatisfaction, not to whether you're married or not. Sometimes in when we're in ministry, people put us in the place of an idol. Because they, if you have a ministry team, they try to please us. You know, and it's kind of, it's something to watch out for and pray against. Because, and if we're in a congregation sometime, we, you know, if Joe Blow over here, if we we do something and minister in this area, um, and only the two of us know about it, somehow that doesn't seem significant, but if the pastor finds out about it, that's good. Because I hope he finds out, because then you'll know I'm really involved ministering in this church. You know, there's just subtle ways that we can even put leaders in that, in place of, authority, uh, in place of something, the acceptance of God that only he can give us. Holding on to things that rightly belong to God. My life, my physical body, my time, my plans, my secret desires. I always think of the little preschooler, and he's got his fingers wrapped around that my little pony thing, and the the church or the the nursery worker in the church or the mother is is sort of trying to pry his fingers off and saying, "Now share," and he's going, "Mine, mine!" And now share what you have with others. And there, you know, he's sharing on the outside, but you better believe he's not sharing on the inside. He's sitting down on the outside, but he is standing up on the inside. Well, I see that um there's two. There's two ways that I flip flop here, holding on to things that rightly belong to God. If I say, God, if you take this away from me, I don't know if I'll follow you. You Or, Lord, if this happens, well, we're gonna have some. We have to have to duke it out because I don't know if I can trust you. Um, partly from the abuse that I suffered, but also from other things, I've had some chronic illnesses and. They've lasted for about 30 years. And 30 years ago, the doctors said, well, maybe you'll live for two weeks, but maybe up to five years, but that would be max. Well, here it is 30-some years later. But having 30 years of constant pain, for example, I was in a Bible class, and the class said, well, how are you doing? I said, well, you know, I have this congestive heart failure, and that's not doing well. Well, we're just going to pray that God will heal you. That We're just going to pray. So... They went away praying that week. Well, about the second day after that Bible study, um, I had one of those times with the Lord at night, you know, where I said out loud, Lord, if, if I could be without this pain for ten minutes, I would just give anything. I just kind of said that out loud without thinking. And it was as though he ministered to my spirit, would you give anything? Would you give the preciousness that this circumstance has brought to our relationship? And he reminded me that the word "precious" appears most in, I think it's First Peter, where the people are suffering. There's a connection somehow between that. And I said, "Oh no, Lord! You know, you mean everything to me." Well, when I got to the Bible study the next week, everybody eagerly said, "Well, did the Lord heal you of that? Did you know?" And I said, "Well, no, but I got to tell you." And so I told them about this encounter with God. And they just kind of looked at me blankly. And then they said, well, we'll keep praying. We'll keep praying because I'm sure God wants to heal you. You know, Um, I had many people come to me at first saying, well, if you had enough faith, you wouldn't be sick or you wouldn't be dying or whatever. And I began to see that um, when Paul said about his thorn in the flesh... And he said he prayed three times that this thing, whatever this physical suffering that he had, would be lifted. I thought three times I prayed like that, 1,286 times. You know. But he said, I would most glory, I would most gladly glory in my weakness that the power of Christ would be seen in me. The Lord really trained me in the fact that we define healing as the lifting of the circumstances. That's all that we see it as. But I believe when Paul said that, He was healed. And that was the aspect that God focuses on first, and that's inside of Paul, he could still have that in his life, and he could still affirm God is good. That's really healing. Because everything in us says, if God is a good God, why isn't he removing this? And yes, oh, by the way, sometimes he chooses to miraculously, or through doctors, or through whatever, medicines bring Healing or physical healing. Whether it's physical pain or relationships pains or, you know, so many other things. Um, I think it's Rabbi Zacharias who says, if you can look at the worst, the most painful thing in your life and look at square in the face and still affirm that you have a good God, then you know that there's healing. Number four, neglecting or rejecting what God has clearly told us to do. That was like that thing where um, that that lady was remember I said yesterday that there was a teen who was saying, you know, should I marry this guy? Should I marry a Lord, why can't I hear from you? What? I'm not I can't get discernment here on this or whatever. And uh there may have been other areas that the Lord had already told her about that she had said, Well, you know what, I'm not doing it your way. And that disobedience was a barrier to hearing his guidance and hearing direction for the situation. One of the things I want to kind of mention here, uh, just as a little rabbit trail, but I think it's, I think it's right on, uh, right online there, and that has to do with wild shoots. I'm a gardener and if those of you that garden and know roses, you know that you have a rose bush here in the spring. It might be about two feet tall and all of a sudden you notice there's this very healthy stalk coming up. And it's usually almost twice as big as some of the others. And I mean that thing's like got miracle growing it. It's just shooting up and it ends up to be almost twice as twice as tall as the uh oh, he warned me that this was rickety. (laughs) <laughs> okay, I think that'll work. Um, it's twice as as healthy looking, it's green, it's just, it's wonderful looking. Well, the problem is, is that as a, a rose gardener, you need to recognize what they call wild shoots. And that's unbounded growth in a certain stalk, and it never bears roses. All it does is sap the life of the rest of the plant. So as soon as you begin to detect a wild shoot, you cut it off. Because otherwise, even the rest of the bush won't grow because all the energy of the plant is being shot into this thing. Well, how the Lord used that in my life, the thought about wild shoots, was that I realized how easy it is to take something sacred or spiritual, like a spiritual gift. And let it be a wild shoot. Just sort of let it slash all over. You know, there's two kinds of people. There's Jeremiah's and then there's the follow behind them carrying the Band-Aids. You know, because the prophets tend to slash, you know. They call a spade a spade. And their ministry is, is really important in the church, as are the Barnabases and the others who have gifts of mercy and compassion. There's such confusion about, uh, you know, prophet and all this and and it just grieves me to see just bizarre things going on in many churches and they're called prophetic gifts. I know one lady came to us. She said, well, I'm trying to figure out what God means. I said, well, what do you mean? What do you mean? Well, what he told me in church yesterday. I said, well, what happened in church? She said, well, I'm trying to figure out what he's trying to tell me. There was a prophet there and he stood up and he said, around, 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 life is a merry-go-round and he sat down. And so I'm trying to figure out what God is trying to tell me. And I said, I know he's trying to tell you to find a new church. <laughs> I'm not talking about that kind of prophetic confusion. I think the fingerprints, you can tell if a prophet is spoken, you know why? Opportunity for repentance. I, I, I just... You know, I spent about six months studying the minor prophets. I wonder, why don't we preach from these? Because what is the topic of each? Repentance. So I thought, well, what is he telling them to repent of? I made this list. If you come to How to Be a Barnabas, it's in that book. It's in the manual. Okay, what was he telling them to repent of? So I made a list, okay? And I went through each, Nahum, Habakkuk, all those guys. And I came to some real ones that didn't make me squirm, like, um, you know, adultery or murder. I thought, well, I'm pretty safe here. But then, the last one in the list is unbelief. He's telling them to repent of unbelief. I thought, unbelief? What's that, God? And it was just so quick he ministered in my spirit. He defined it this way. Unbelief is an arrogant challenge to the character of God. An arrogant challenge to the character of God. And I would rather call it unbelief. Well, I'm wrestling with unbelief. Instead of saying, I know... You you can see how that's defined in in the Word, because God says this, and I'm saying, basically, I know you said that, but I don't believe you. An arrogant challenge to the character of God. Well, what I found is... That's a rabbit trail. I'm sorry about that. Going back to the thing of using our spiritual gifts, can be a wild shoot, because for me, I know it's based... Often I minister based on need and not leading. So I, I see a need, I rush in, and I try to use a spiritual gift to, to fix that up there. Well, you can see the fingerprints of pride there anyway. But I equate it to like a parking lot. And if that need in that person's life, I'd look in and you know, see one of those signs that reserved for Dr. So-and-so or whatever, it says, you know, brighten up, need, need, need. So I rush in there and park and dash into the building. Well, the person that the Lord has called to meet that need, meet that need is in his car driving around because that was the only parking space left. He can't park there because I'm parked there. And in my spiritual arrogance, I say, well, yeah, but there's a need. who's going to do the final do it? Meantime, the guy's out there honking his horn to get me to move my car because God has called him to go in and meet that need in that person's life, and I see that as a wild shoot in my life and spiritual gifts, where you feel like you have to exercise them in this situation. To me, that's a heads up for me that that's a needs-driven ministry, not a discernment-driven ministry. Wow. Anyway. There's, under this fourth point, neglecting or rejecting what God has clearly told me to do, there's two points that I wanted to stick in there. One of them is, an example of that would be refusing to forgive. Refusing to forgive. What I see in some counseling ministries especially those attached to churches, they feel that forgiveness is a magic wand that if you can just get the person to forgive who we'll beat them up, then everything's okay. In my mind, forgiveness is a gift that God gives us for that other person once there's truth established in that situation. By that I mean, uh, for, well, for example, one pastor called me and said, well, this lady, you know, she's all infested with demons and there's just all kind of demonic activity going on. And so I told her to make a list of all the people she needed to forgive. So she did. So then she brought me her list today. We went over each one. I said, okay, now say that you forgive this person. Say that you, and he said at the end of our time together, she still was demonically infested. So I'm wondering, uh, what you think, but I don't think she was sincere in her forgiveness, was she? What? Yeah. It, that's an example of thinking that forgiveness, all you have to do is convince a person to forgive from the heart. Are we supposed to forgive from the heart? Yeah. Is part of that person's healing and freedom forgiving? Yeah. But I've seen it almost become like sort of this abstract weapon that uh, the reason you're still in this bondage is you're unwilling to forgive. Well, maybe there are some people that are like that, but it's not a one size fits all. That might not be the reason at all. Take, for example, the kid that's, the little girl's been incested by her father, and you say, you need to forgive your father. She says, well, I tried, I just, but I, I don't know, I just, I guess I forgive him, but I don't know, but I just, you know, back and forth like this. Wouldn't it make more sense to see the Lord uproot the lie that I deserve to be treated like that, or my father was my spiritual authority so I had to submit to him in this. All those kind of lies. And clear out that whole thing so that she can authentically forgive him. I think it's just a, it's kind of just a heads up I want to give us not to use, not to, yet to use the thought that all that's needed is to get people to be willing to forgive. I think forgiveness is a byproduct that they willingly enter into once truth is in place. (laughs) You warned me that it was iffy. Alright, we're gonna take a break here, so I'll hold this for a minute. There we go. You're gonna deduct that from whatever? Looks like we've got a little patch of chewing gum that's holding this on here. Here, I'll let you touch it so I won't wreck it. In just a minute. Okay. I'll try not to touch anything. Back away from the podium. It if we change it. There we go. That one's better. Good thing. So, refusing to forgive is under number four, neglecting or rejecting what God has clearly told me to do. Yes, thank you. But let's add a second thing under that number four. Re- refusing to embrace. To embrace the suffering we go through. Refusing to embrace the suffering we go through. Like I said, if if I think that God's main job is to immediately erase anything negative or pressuring in my life, and that's called having faith, it's easy to slip into that. When I was a kid... um, I went to Sunday school, and those of you, again, that read the book, you know that's in there. I went to Sunday school, and nobody at church knew what was going on at home, partly because my father, as a pedophile, was a Sunday school superintendent. Um, It's interesting how having access to children... Here, I'll just hold it here. That'll be fine. There we go. This will work. No, that's fine. Having access to children, of course, is often where they go. Well, I knew what he had told me would happen to me if I told anybody, so I wasn't even going there. But I was in in Sunday school. I must have been in first grade, maybe. And um, the Sunday school teacher said this. I'm not sure where she got her. Thank you. Where she got her theology, maybe out of a Cracker Jack box or something. But she said, if bad things are happening to you, pray, and God will keep them from happening. And if you're frightened, pray, and God will make it so you don't have to be afraid. Well, I knew which person, which friend of my father was coming. He always came. They always came the same night. So on Tuesday, I knew Rudy was coming. I was terrified. So as a little girl of faith, I asked the Lord, keep Rudy from coming, and don't let me be afraid. But Rudy came anyway, and I was terrified as usual. So over the years, I would say to Lord Lord, where were you? why didn't you honor that little girl's faith you know and and I hope I don't get in trouble with Martha when I get to heaven, but the description I'm about ready to give of her I think it's based on the verses in scripture. Mary and Martha came to Jesus with the pain in their life their brother had died and They both knew the same truth, but Martha turned... They say the same words, but Martha turned it into an accusation. She goes out and says to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Mary goes, falls at his feet and says, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I believe what you see of their nearness to the Lord, their position, she's worshiping him. There's a difference in how that was spoken. Well, by God's grace, and it was only his grace... I could, as a little girl, not say, well, where were you? Why didn't you stop that? I could just, as I thought of it, for, for almost 27 years, when it would pop into my head in the morning when I was meeting with the Lord, I said, Lord, you know, I sure would like to know, where were you then? What, why didn't you honor that belief that the little girl that I had been told that you were like that, you know? Well, I was teaching at a very conservative, university, and um, I got dressed, I'd asked him that again in the morning, got dressed, got in the car, started to drive to work, and God answered that. Well, I had a problem because I pulled over to the side of the road, but I had to call in on my cell phone, but I wasn't sure they would understand if I said, well, I'll be late for work because the creator of the universe has just spoken to me, Yeah. I, I didn't quite, I said, I'm not feeling real well, which was true. I mean, after the the university, you know. Anyway, um, he said four things to me that day beside the side of the road. And when I, I, I learned enough to know, he answered the why. And I've learned enough to know that my answer doesn't work for anybody else. Because they need to hear from him either in saying, can you trust me even though you don't understand? The Lord had given me an unexplained box in my life as a kid, and after that episode, I thought, "Well, the teacher said God would stop that, but it didn't. He didn't. And somehow, I was—I mean, in my little mind, I just called it an unexplained box, and I would stick it in there. I don't know why. Well, when I was beside the road there, he—he he was so gracious because he said him. Um, Every time you prayed, I heard was the first thing he really ministered to me in my spirit. And I thought, how kind of God, because I remember as a little kid thinking after the event, well maybe I messed it up because I don't know, did the teacher say we had to pray out loud to get God to hear us? Or, I mean, maybe that's why it happened because I messed up because I didn't pray out loud. You know, and here 27 years later, God affirms to me the truth of his word that every time we pray, he hears. The second thing was very powerful because I hadn't wept for, well, about 20 years. I never cried. Um, I remember once at the races, somebody turned around, spilled boiling coffee accidentally on my bare foot, and I just looked and watched it become a second-degree burn and had no emotion. Didn't weep even over that. Well, he said, every time you wept, I wept. And if you think about it, there are verses that, Describe God's character just this way. When people come to me and they say, or I go to the hospital and their daughter of four years old is dying of leukemia, and in their, in the pressure and the bitterness of the moment, they say, where is God? What is God doing? At the right time and in the right way, I can say them, say to them, I don't know what else he's doing, but I know he's weeping. You know, he, he, He's intimately acquainted with our ways. He's an emotional God. He, he collects our tears. He values our tears. He's, he weeps with us. And so the second thing was very powerful to me. The third thing that the Lord explained was, there's no way that you can understand why I let men choose. There's no way that you can understand why I let men choose good and evil. And he brought to mind sort of like, you know, if I'm trying to teach my dog to talk German, well he's not built for figuring that out. My mind isn't built for figuring out why he allows free will. So he said, every, he said, every time you prayed I heard, every time you wept I wept. There's no way you can understand why I allow men to choose evil. And the the fourth thing he said was a question, and I find this is the real issue with the hurting people that come to be discipled, and that is discipleship class. The subtitle is Learning How to Trust God. And I'm really convinced that we can teach people more about how to trust God, and we can learn to trust God more by focusing on one thing. I think people... Trust God to the degree and the measure that they really believe He unconditionally loves them. So that at, when I take them in a the study of the Word about God's unconditional love, they begin to learn to trust in Him more. Because that verse says, "We have come to know," ginosko you know or whatever it is, and have believed. The stay, have believed. You know, how do we get help people get from knowing? To believing I think having them be able to be embraced and be willing to be embraced by the unconditional love of God a lot of people are wise in not trusting the God they picture they should fire that God and get the real one in there you know, their perception of what that God is like they're wise in not trusting him There's a, we. this is back to our point, we seem to have lots of rabbits here, rabbit trails, but the second point was embracing, refusing to embrace the suffering we go through. Um, There's such an enticement for an easy life, isn't there? And I don't think we should pray, Lord, help me suffer or bring lots of bad things into my life or anything like that, opening the door to the enemy, but there's a difference I found between embracing and being resigned to something Yeah, you know, embracing means more like welcoming somebody when I was in the hospital 30 years ago and they weren't sure whether I was going to make it or not somebody from the church sent me a little card and I cut out verse on the front and stuck it up and I still have it and it says as for God his way is perfect what a thing to be able to minister to somebody in the middle of suffering not with a I call them spiritual hand grenade you know God works all things for, together for good you throw that at somebody it blows up and it destroys more not in a spiritual hand grenade kind of thing but at the right time in the right way being able to give them a glimpse of the Heart of the Good Shepherd, so that they can know that they're not suffering alone and that their suffering is a sacrifice, can be a sacrifice to God. I heard, you know, some of you know of Amy Carmichael in India. She used to rescue the uh, prostitute little girls and boys that were sold to the idols in the Buddhist temples, and she used to kidnap um, uh, them and take them to her orphanages. Anyway, um, she uh, she passed away, and then there were other Indians who took over the work. And I remember, I think it was Aurelia, her name was. And I thought, boy, I think I have a lot to learn, because Aurelia and her husband had a daughter who I don't know what disease she had, but she died when she was about two, two and a half. And Aurelia turned to her husband at the moment that the child died. And said, we may never have another chance in our life to offer God a sacrifice of praise than right now. Why don't we do it? (laughs) You know. I think they understood a little more, a lot more than I did, how God values the suffering we go through. And how he... He sees it so different than we do. I have a friend named Zora whose brother was a football player in high school, and he broke his hand really badly. And I remember Zora telling me that he was like 12, I guess. And it was years ago, so uh, they had it in a cast, and it came out like this. So then the mother had, back then they had little lead, lead weights and had strings, and she was supposed to sort of do therapy at home, you know, put the weight on each finger and, Try to get it stretched out. What well, was incredibly painful for the, for Zora's brother because, uh, it was sort of atrophied and the joints were stiff because it had been in the cats for so long. And so he used to just cry and scream, you know, don't, why are you doing this to me? But the mother knew that the doctor had said if they didn't do that rehab stuff, his hand would be crippled the rest of his life. And I recognize myself looking to God and saying, why are you doing this to me? And it usually tells me that I also need to pray, Lord, I need your perspective here. I want the helicopter view of this. Would you show me what your perspective is on this? On page M8, or actually bottom of M7, before I break here, this is, um, again, just some suggestions you might want to go through later, and or you can lead someone else through. And again, it's not, if you do these four steps, you'll be free of pride for the rest of your life. Money back guarantee, I don't think so. But it's a good resource. And then on the next page, we won't take time to read through it now, but an M8, the heart that God revives. You might want to get alone with the Lord and go through this and put a little tick or check when you recognize, oh yeah, I think that's sort of a pattern in my life, and see which column it comes in under. Or, now this may be a challenge for you, but you might ask your spouse to do this in relationship to you. In other words have him or have her say is a pattern in my spouse's life that they focus on the failures of others or are they overwhelmed with a sense of their own path of their own spiritual need one of the goofy things about pride is that as I said it, it comes in camouflage fatigues and usually it comes with its own you know screen camouflage it's hard for us to realize it ourself. So sometimes it's helpful. Um, there's a couple pages of that, and then starting on M, M11, there's this checklist. And again, it's used, some people use it in marriage counseling, so they have them each do one for themselves and then for their spouse. In other words, uh it says, check the blanks for areas of pride in your life. So the the wife might check for herself, Hey, okay, the desire to be recognized and appreciated, Lord. Is that a real strong desire in my life? And then also in my husband's life, Lord. Is that, you know, could to, to go down to it? Hurt feelings when others are promoted and I'm overlooked, focus on myself rather than others. Blaming others for their failures, becoming defensive when criticized. Um there was a there's a lady that's come with her family, and she's receiving ministry from some of the ladies on our ministry team. And her husband is from um, South America, or he's from Cuba. They're both believers, and he has never been able to forgive her for an affair she had. He's constantly bringing it up, even in front of the children, even in saying, I don't even know who their father is. I don't even know if I'm their father. Just wickedness. Well, it's different now. He doesn't bring it up anymore. Why doesn't he bring it up anymore? Because one of the men on our staff who has been discipling him, he got to the place where this man was willing to admit that he had had an affair. And all his hatred against her and bitterness and rage against her Was mostly against himself, and once he was, he brought that out into the light. That you know, the verbal abuse and sometimes physical abuse against his wife hasn't happened. Um, I mention that because pride likes to keep things hidden so that we still look like we're really mature or spiritual. My heart goes out to people in leadership because. Most of our churches aren't safe places where the pastor has one other person that he can go to and say, you know, I just, I just have this that I don't know why it still entices me. You know, I, I've had this failure in the past. I've sinned in this area and I thought it was cleared up, but I just get so close to the edge and I'm really concerned and I need to be accountable to. You. I need to find in prayer to find the reason why, how can I resist these things? Well, most of us know that if we did that, especially those in leadership, chances are it would be on the 7 o'clock news the next night. (laughs) At least the church's 7 o'clock news, which in some churches is called the floor chain. Not all, but in some churches. Are there any questions? Did you have a comment or question? Or... Okay, good. All right. I guess we're supposed to... Well, is there one other question real quick? Keep remembering the extra credit thing. (laughs) Brownie points. If not, um, we're supposed to have a 20-minute break, and then we're going to come back and talk about rebellion. And I think this is real key, because um, a lot of times in teenagers' lives, those that we minister to, This is a real big issue, and I think the more understanding the Lord can give us in it, the more we're able to help them as well as be on guard in our own life. Don't forget to uh, put your name on our mailing list and get the business cards there if you need. And also, I'm i done speaking uh, this afternoon, and I'll be at the question and answer thing. I'll be here tomorrow until about 1 o'clock, and that time is reserved, uh, especially for any of the ladies that would like to just meet for maybe half-hour prayer one-on-one or just to talk together. So just let me know. I have a couple of slots still left, so if, if you'd like to do that. I'm not discriminating against the men, but the ladies are the area that I mostly minister with.